And now let's open our Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians chapter six. We will read together verses 10 through 20. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we ask that this preacher's poor effort to proclaim your word would be blessed with your almighty power, that it would come with the fire of the Spirit's work within the heart of every Christian, burning out the dross in preacher and congregation alike, sanctifying us and calling us to arms. Help us, Father, to believe and repent and to be serious about our faith. And we ask that those who may be among us today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are strangers to grace, and who are bound in Satan's kingdom, would be released by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit through the Word. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. This is the Word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, but on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. People of God, we are at war. This sermon is a call to arms. We cannot remain comfortable. There is no neutrality in this war. There is a foe to fight, battles to win, and we are called to strike blow upon blow and to inflict heavy and fatal casualties on the enemy of our souls. Some of you are engaged in the battle. Some of you are being faithful. Some of you are drinking in the word. You are seeing the fruit of it in your lives. Some of you are not believers at all. Others of you are believers, but you have grown lax. You have grown lazy. You need to hear this call to arms. Because the battlefield is subtle and the enemy is so clever and Satan can transform himself into an angel of light, we can forget that we are at war and we too easily can aid and abet the enemy. 
So the very first thing we see as we turn to the text is we are at war. And I would ask you to look again at verses 10 through 12. Finally, this is his last exhortation. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are at war. And the first promise of grace in the Bible is a promise that all of redemptive history until the return of Christ will be warfare. It's found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in which God said, I will put enmity, that means hatred, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is the promise that there are two lines, antithetical lines, throughout redemptive history, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God's people and those who oppose the gospel, and there is warfare between them. Yet many professing Christians seem not to strike one blow for the cause of Christ. Now why is that? Some professing Christians do not strike one blow for the cause of Christ because some professing Christians are not true Christians at all. And if you're not a real Christian, if you've not been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own dear Son then there's no way you can strike a blow for Christ. You have no desire to. There's no fight in them because there's no life in them. They have no personal quarrel with sin, and they are at peace with God's enemies. So I ask you to search your hearts. Is that true of someone here today? But then some strike a blow here and there, but you've grown tired, you've grown lazy, you've grown comfortable. And so you're slack in family worship. You have grown slack in your personal devotion, infrequent in your time in your closet. You do not speak a word for Christ. Well, are you more at peace with sin now than you were a few months ago? Have you grown lax in the things of God? Luther said, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is tested. Well, you know where the battle rages in our hearts and around us. Are you loyal? You can't walk obediently without fighting. Has the enemy caught you napping with your armor hanging on a hook? We are at war. I want to make the point as clearly as possible. That's the assumption of the text. God's true people are at war, and we always will be until we die or Christ comes again. Second thing, then, we need to ask the question, who is your enemy? If you are at war, who is your enemy? And the answer of the text is that he is formidable indeed. He is the foul fiend Satan and his forces, of whom we read in verses 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan does not lightly lose one of his own. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, 
verses 8 and 9, that the devil, like a roaring lion, seeks to devour. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Satan is hell-bent on your destruction. He wants to lead you into sin. And at those critical moments in your life, those forces are there to whitewash and to make sin look attractive and to tempt us away from Christ. Now, it's extremely important that we understand that Satan and his minions are real. There are those who think that he's just a symbol of evil in the Bible. No, he's a malevolent spirit. He tempted Eve. He blinds and deceives sinners. Jesus calls him the father of lies. He accuses the brethren. He seeks to devour God's people. He inflicted the thorn in Paul's side, and he so confused Peter's thinking that Jesus had to say to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He's defeated in principle on the cross, and he will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the age. But he is still, until then, a formidable enemy of God's people. Now, don't miss the emphasis on darkness in the text. We read in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. And we've already been told by Paul, as you recall, in chapter 5, verse 11, in chapter 5, verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And so unseen behind the struggles that we read in the news and that we know and experience in the church of Jesus Christ, behind it all is the malevolent spirit, Satan. Now, one term that the Apostle Paul uses in this text is particularly important for us to note. It's the word cosmocrator, and it's translated here cosmic powers. It means a world ruler, and it's used in the plural, world rulers, cosmic powers. Do you remember that in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 tells us that Satan is the god of this world, lowercase g. That is to say, under the sovereignty of the true and living God, Satan rules in the hearts and lives of those who do not know him. Someone here, you're lost and you're undone. That's what the scriptures teach. You don't even know it, but you are led by the evil one. One commentator says this, These forces are called rulers of the world in order to bring out the terrifying power of their influence and comprehensiveness of their plans, and thus to emphasize the seriousness of the situation. And so the evil ruler, cosmocrator, the world rulers, but we should contrast with that word, the word pantocrator that is used in Revelation 1.8 of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is translated there, the Almighty. It's wrong for us to think 
that there is some eternal principle at work, an eternal good and an eternal evil, and that they combat one another forever. No, there is the eternal good who is God, and there will be an end to evil, and Jesus Christ is Pantocrator the Almighty. Now this means, therefore, that we should not underestimate the seriousness of the evil one. That's one mistake. And we should not overestimate the importance and seriousness of the evil one. That's another mistake. At any point that we think of the evil one, we should think of Christ who is Pantocrator, who is the Almighty over all things, and that the devil is God's devil. He is under his sovereignty. Now, I remember hearing about a young Christian girl who was upset when she became a Christian and had lived her Christian life for a while because she found out that her Christian life was filled with conflict. Conflict that, of course, she had never known and experienced before becoming a Christian. Conflict without, conflict within. She was very, very upset. No one had told her about the conflict. Well, let me tell you about the conflict. It's when you come to know the Lord that there is conflict. Before that, you didn't care about sin, about opposing sin. You didn't care about honoring Christ. You didn't care about His glory. You didn't care that His name was trounced in the world. But now there is this conflict, and it will go on in your life until Jesus Christ comes again or calls you home. Now just get it down in your book. Write it down. This conflict is something that is unavoidable and part of the Christian life. Recently in a Vesper sermon, I quoted Abraham Kuyper, and Kuyper said this, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything in its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. There is where the real conflict is waged. So the battle in which you are engaged, Christian, with the unseen forces of this present evil age, this dark, dark age, comparing it to the battles that we see in a place like Iraq, I mean the physical battles, behind that is certainly cosmic darkness, but the physical battle The battle in which you are engaged makes those battles look like child's play. And so we see thirdly, that therefore we need the complete armor. The complete armor of God. That's the third thing. The Christian incomplete armor, to use the old Puritan expression of William Gurnall. Now will you notice that God's strength is first? That you are dependent. These are dark days. These are confusing days. And without God's strength, you will certainly fall. So Paul directs us to the power of his might, the manifestation of God's power, because you and I are no match for the devil. And so we read in verse 10, if you will look at it, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then the Apostle Paul, beginning with God's strength lists for us these various parts of the armor that we are called to put on. Now, this is a reference to Isaiah 59. You heard it this morning as Pastor McDonald read to us from this great passage. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. 
and there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on a on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And the Apostle Paul alludes to this passage in Isaiah 59. Christ then offers his own armor to you and to me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means the means that he gives to us to fight the battle are sufficient. We will find them to be sufficient provided we use them. Are you using them? And so he says in verse 13, take up, take it all up, the panoplia, the whole armor of God, the equipment of a heavily armed soldier. There must be action on your part as a believer in Christ to actually take up the armor and put it on to rouse yourself daily. And to put on these various pieces of armor. There are six pieces of this complete armor beginning in verse 14. There is the belt of truth. Now the belt of truth, of course, is this great belt that would be worn by by the soldier that was a preparatory piece. The breastplate was attached to it. And the great tunic, of course, would be gathered up and would be placed into the belt so that the tunic would not be in one's way as he was engaged in using his sword and his shield and fighting in the battle. It was basic. But without this basic instrument, the battle would be lost. Now, Satan is out to confuse, but we must gird ourselves with the truth of God's Word. You live in a day where people all around you do not know what to believe. Where people all around you do not even believe there's such a thing as truth. They do not believe that God has spoken. They do not believe that there are absolutes. But you're a Christian. You put on the belt of truth. You know that there is truth. There is absolute truth. Now I ask you this question, do you love the truth? I mean, do you really love it? Do you have a passion for the truth? There's a remarkable, remarkable passage in that great Puritan John Owen, the sermon that he was preaching, actually that has to do with ministers and their qualifications. And he can say that in his day, now this, we would think that Owen in his day would be the absolute pinnacle of love for the truth. And yet he could say that he sees already a waning of love for the truth compared to the ministers in his youth. I ask you, do you love the truth? I hope that one thing I say around here, whether you remember it that it was I who said it is really not the point, but I pray that there's something that echoes down through the generations of this church that I say time and time again. And that you will pass it on. And it's this, it only takes one generation to lose a love or passion for the truth. So one generation may love the truth. Another generation may lightly hold or tolerate the truth. The next generation forgets it altogether. and brings in all kinds of substitutes as is happening in the church of Christ today. The belt of truth, that's first. Do you love the truth? And then we find the breastplate of righteousness here in verse 14. He tells us that we are to take up the whole armor of God, stand therefore having 
fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now you'll note that there's nothing to cover the back. Nothing provided here to cover your back. It's like one of those embarrassing hospital gowns, you know. Uh, I can only advance. I don't want anybody behind me. No pun intended. So you move forward. You move forward. There's nothing to cover the back. You only advance in the Christian life. What happens if the darts of Satan are coming and you turn around and run? You see, you have no option here. You have a breastplate to cover the front, nothing to cover the back. You move forward. That's your calling as a Christian. So why the breastplate of righteousness? Because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He says, look how guilty and how vile and how filthy you are. Look at that filthy thought that you had. Look at that failing in your life. What protection do you have, people of God? Well, I have a righteousness not my own that is laid to my account. An infinitely perfect righteousness. A righteousness that consists of the obedience and suffering of the Son of God of which we sang in our opening hymn. So you say to Satan, do you see my breastplate? Fire what arrows you may, you shall never destroy the work of Jesus Christ. Never. His perfect record is my breastplate against your accusations. But then he says, you need shoes. And so in verse 15, he says, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, you say all God's children got shoes. Yes, but do you put them on? It's one thing to have shoes, it's another thing to wear them. The boots of the Roman soldier is referenced here with spikes so that there is sure footing and and the ability to stand and the ability to to march. But the shoes that we have are shoes that are readied by the gospel, shoes that are resplendent with the peace that God has given to his people. And so, do you have peace with God? Satan attacks. How can you have peace with God? Surely not. Look at the failings of your life. Oh, you say, I put on my shoes this morning. And I can look down at my shoes and they say this to me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And with this truth, I lift up my foot and crush your head. And we can have quiet minds because we have peace with God. And because our consciences are immersed in Jesus' blood, and despite all my perils, I will never perish. Peril is one thing. Perishing is another. And then there's the shield of faith. We find it here in verse uh, 16. In all circumstances, all circumstances, never put it down. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, any good commentator will generally tell you that this is the the shield that was about four by two and a half. Uh, There would be the phalanx as all of the shields met one another as a wall so that they could, could stand against the flaming arrows dipped in pitch. Well, are you able to defend yourself against the flaming darts? Let me ask you a question. If, I were, if you were a soldier in training, you were about to go on a battle, 
And maybe you'd miss some of this basic information. And I were saying to you right now, don't you think you should hear this before you go into the battle or you might lose your life? Don't you think you'd listen up? You better listen up because that's where you are spiritually. So you need this shield. I remember years ago Dr. Ferguson saying that there was a ministerial student who was attacked with blasphemous thoughts. He wasn't doing anything to encourage it. He was just attacked by these blasphemous thoughts. Well, what are you to do when that kind of thing happens? Well, you gather all the promises of God and hold them up before Satan as my shield of faith. I believe the promise of God. When all around my hope gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Shield of faith. But then he says you also need to cover your head. You need to have a protected head, do you not? And so there must be the helmet of salvation. We read about that in verse 17, if you will look there. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The helmet of salvation. Now the helmet, of course, is there to protect the head, but it's not only there for protection, it's there because of identity. Oh, I recognize him. He's a Roman soldier. I'm not going to hurt him. He's on my side. He's wearing a Roman helmet. Oh, I recognize this person. He belongs to a different army, and I can tell because of his identity that is shown in the helmet that he wears. Well, protection, but also identity. If you are a son or a daughter of God, then you have protection, but you also have a new identity. And that's why it uses a different verb here. It doesn't say take it up, but it says receive it. Because you receive your identity. It is Christ who puts the helmet of salvation upon your heads. We do not earn this dignity. We receive this dignity. Is there one who would pray, cover my defenseless head, as we sang this morning? Well, faith cannot, cannot do anything without the promises of God's word. And so there is one last but most essential piece, and that is the sword. Again in verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. And so there's the sword. Now, why is this needed? Well, you can have a helmet. You can have a belt and shoes, and you can have a breastplate. Well, that might help some. The darts are coming at you, but when the soldier's in front of you, you need a sword. When you're advancing on the enemy, if you don't have a sword, then what can you do? Who can win against an enemy when we don't have a sword? Because Satan is a liar, you need the sword. Because you need to know who is true and what is true, you need the sword of God's Holy Spirit. That's the Word of God. So studying the Word of God makes us aware of the devil's lies. Studying the Word of God makes us aware of what is true and what is good and what is right. So would you live in victory over the evil one? Then hear God's word preached and study God's word. So long as the church relies on God's word, she conquers. When the church sets aside God's word, she compromises and looks like the world. The arm of the flesh will fail. 
Now the sword is an offensive weapon, not only a defensive weapon. We are marching against the gates of hell, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us, and that's why we need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So I gave you an illustration several sermons back that I promised you I would bring at the end of our study of Ephesians, and I'm bringing it to you again this morning because I need it and so do you. And it comes from the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, young people, if you've not read the Pilgrim's Progress, you really need to. It is one of the the great pieces of... Just go to your teacher and, and say, can I get some credit for reading this? It's one of the great pieces of English literature, and everyone should read The Pilgrim's Progress. Well, having described Apollyon, ugly with scales and evil and wicked and malevolent, Christian who is making his way to the celestial city, you know, it's an allegory, young people. Christian is making his way to heaven, and there are the pitfalls along the way. And Christian at this particular point comes up against the devil, Apollyon as he is called. And then we read, Apollyon broke into a grievous rage saying, I am an enemy to this prince, speaking of the Lord. I hate his person, his laws and people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. Apollyon then says that he will destroy. And Christian replies, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way and said, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den thou shalt go no further. Here will I spill thy soul. And with that he, drew, he threw a flaming dart at his breast, but Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it, and so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw, for he saw it was time to bestir him, and Apollyon as fast made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail, by the which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollyon wounded him in his head, his hand, and foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollyon, therefore, followed his work amain. And Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. For you must know that Christian, by reason of his wounds, must needs grow weaker and weaker. Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity... He's weakened him down. He's constant. He's unrelenting. Espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian and wrestling with him, gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. 
Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings and sped him away that Christian saw him no more. In this combat, no man can imagine, unless he had seen and heard as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring Apollyon made all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon, and on the other side what sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. I never saw him all the while give so much as one pleasant look till he perceived he had wounded Apollyon with his two-edged sword. Then indeed he did smile and look upward, but it was the dreadfulest fight that I ever saw. That is the Christian life. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if, if, if your relish for the Word of God, the Word preached, the Word read, the Word studied, time with God, public and private worship, if your relish for the Word of God is beginning to wane, then you are in serious spiritual trouble. So what's true of your heart? Oh, I can miss worship a few times. I'll be okay. I don't really have to have all this quiet time, do I? Commune with God, that's important, yeah, but I've I've got business, entertainment. That's spiritual trouble. Fourthly, will you notice there's an admonition to stand in this passage? He tells us in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And notice verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then notice 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and so forth. Three times he says stand, stand, withstand once. So how? By distrusting your own strength, becoming dependent on the Lord, by, be, by coming in the power of His might, God will always strengthen His people who call upon Him. But in Christ you are invincible. In your own strength you are not. And He uses this word stane, to stand, with the preposition pros. Stanai, stanai, pros which means to stand against or maybe even stand in the face of. In the face of what? In the face of false doctrine, in the face of immorality, in the face of self-absorption, in the face of temptations to depression, in the face of home difficulties and strife, in the face of relationships that 
need the gospel. You stand by distrusting your own strength, by becoming dependent. Are you standing or are you retreating? Can you say with Luther, here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. Let me remind you of those three teenage girls that I told you of a few weeks back who could only answer the infidel by standing up and singing, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss, from victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up for Jesus where you are. Stand for Jesus where you are. And then there's this, Fifth thing, briefly, an admonition to pray. We're going to look at it more next week, but it has to be mentioned this morning. An admonition to pray. Notice in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The army does you and does me no good. The armor, the armor does not make us good soldiers of the cross apart from prayer. The armor does not make us good soldiers of the cross, but the ability to use the armor does, and that comes with prayer. And so we need courage and we need strength and the resources along with the armor that only God can give. And this is why in this context we are encouraged to pray. Because remember, in order to fight the good fight of faith, we must realize that we are powerless. And prayer acknowledges our powerlessness because prayer is the language of creaturely dependence. Hendrickson says it beautifully. The word of God directed to men is powerful indeed, especially when it is in close association with the word of men directed to God. Prayer. Through prayer, God exercises his strength. And I suspect, just knowing the temptations of my own heart, understanding Christians as I believe I do, I rather suspect, as I talk about prayer this morning, there's a real weakness in some of your lives right here. And the reason you're weak is because you don't pray. The reason that you are not growing in grace is because you're not spending time pleading before God, opening your heart, and being real with Him. Through prayer, God exercises His strength. Some of you still don't believe what I'm saying. How often have I stressed the importance of prayer and you've not changed yet? If you believe me, put it differently, if you believe God's word that I'm preaching, you go and change. Well, it's not too late. But more on that next time. Only one has defeated Satan in mortal combat, and that is Christ, and so we need him to meet the enemy of our souls, and we do that in prayer. Let's bring it to a conclusion. Let's wake up. If you're asleep, wake up. We are living in perilous times. We must fight. The Christian life is a battleground, and I'm very, very concerned for the evangelical church in America and elsewhere because there's so much that is glib and superficial. 
But there's no room for that. We're at war. And the church needs reformation. So how do we engage in Christian warfare? Let me sum it up. The text tells us four ways that you engage in Christian warfare. First, we denounce self-sufficiency. We must have his strength, according to verse 10, God's weaponry and prayer. Second, we must put on the armor of God's own provision. We do not need one part but the whole armor. The Puritan William Gurnall wrote a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's that thick. I'll give you one quote from it. What is the armor? By armor is meant Christ. Till Christ be put on, the creature is unarmed. Is there someone here you've never put on Christ by faith? You're completely unarmed. So we denounce self-sufficiency. We put on the armor of God's own provision. Thirdly, we stand. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. We're steady on the front lines. We stand. And then fourthly, we must pray. Verse 18 and following. You appropriate the armor in prayer daily. So are you ready now to go out and do battle? This sermon is a call to arms. We really cannot be neutral. I have a quote from Mr. Spurgeon for you this morning. A sermon preached on 1 Samuel eighteen seventeen. He said, fight. Fight the Lord's battles. If you are the soldier of the heavenly king to arms to arms, fight the Lord's battles. Here I would observe that there are some people who are very fond of looking on and not fighting. Perhaps five out of every six of our church do little but look on. You go to see them and you say, well, what is your church doing? Well, we bless God. We're doing a great deal. We have a Sabbath school with so many children. Our minister preaches so many times. And so many members have been added to the church. The sick are visited. The poor are relieved. And you stop them and say, well, friend, I'm glad to hear that you're doing so much. But which work is it that you take? Do you teach in the Sabbath school? No. Do you preach in the street? No. Do you visit the sick? No. Do you assist in the discipline of the church? No. Do you contribute to the poor? No. Yet I thought you said you were doing so much. Stand out, sir, if you please. You're doing nothing at all. Be ashamed. Your master does not say, look on at the Lord's battles, but fight them. I just leave the application to my heart and yours as believers in Jesus. But the point is, ultimately, folks, we cannot be neutral in this battle. You know the hymn, don't you? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by thy word. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer, though they die. They see the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. 
When that illustrious day shall rise and all thine army shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. God's people said, Amen. Amen.